Welcome back to Bible Love. We record on Thursdays, as always. And so the prayer we're doing today is from a book, Every Moment Holy, that Mary Balfour and I love. And this is a liturgy for Thursday's table blessing. O King of joys eternal, today we praise you for small wonders. In them we see your delight. For birds that trill and warble their worship, for the verdant witness of wind-blown leaves, and of starlight sparkling and of sunlit streams, and of blooming flowers, we praise you, O King, your joy is everywhere manifest, even in the smallest things. We praise you, O King, for soft beds and blankets, for stories and songs, for kisses and kindness. Your tenderness is displayed in all things nurturing. Your mercy is manifest in the details of this world, O Lord. Your grace is worked into every corner of creation. Your care is evident in the fabric of all created things, even in the pleasurable and nourishing properties of this meal. For this food and for all small wonders, we give you thanks and we give you praise, O God. Amen. 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 Well, Bible Love listeners, you're in for another treat. We've just been having all these awesome guests, and today's guest is just as awesome as all the other ones. Um, the Reverend Greg Farron is joining us. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Greg, but I hope, Greg, that you will also give us a little bit more about what you do, which is a little bit different than other Episcopal priests. Um, but Greg is a buddy of mine from when I was in the Diocese of North Carolina. We have always enjoyed each other. Great guy, lots of fun. Um, was a priest on staff um, at a church in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is where you live. But now is the executive director of Second Breath. I had the opportunity to take a class from Greg. Um, he's a very gifted teacher and is going to talk to us about Joshua. But before we do that, Greg, will you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about Second Breath? And we'll link it also in our show notes um, so that sure. they can go and learn, too. So welcome and tell us about Second Breath. Oh, thank you. It's really, really great to be here. Love this love this podcast. Really enjoy listening and watching. Um, so yeah, it was about, uh, uh, in 2008, I was completely burned out in ministry. Uh, I was fried. Uh, I was really about to throw the towel in on, on ministry altogether. Uh, when I found out about second breath, it was called servant leadership then. And, uh, but I went to this class and it taught, uh, it was a fresh articulation of Christian spirituality. And by fresh, I don't mean new, but it was, uh, ancient and beautiful, but it was also resonant with science and our, our tradition. Uh, and, and also they taught spiritual practices that completely refilled my tanks, just ways to just get out of your head and actually land in your heart and your body, all this great doctrine in my heart and body. And it totally transformed me. I remember my wife said to me, Greg, I don't know what you're doing in the second breath classes, but whatever you're doing, please keep going. Cause it's changing you as a husband, it's changing you as a dad, it's changing you as a, a minister. And so it really, for me, was a total game changer of really uh, uh, giving me a toolbox full of spiritual practices that actually create space to, for the Holy Spirit 
to give you what Jesus described as fullness of life. And so it was so powerful in my life that I couldn't believe it when the opportunity rose up for me to become the executive director. And I've been doing that now for about two years. Uh, and, and we have an app. Uh, we have online school now. Uh, the app is full of hundreds of spiritual practices. And um, that's what my passion is. I, I, I love to create space for people to shift from mere intellectual belief systems to an actual inner experience of Christ's presence and love. And then as you experience that, it just ripples out from your life or your ministry or your family, or your kids or community to, to benefit the world. So that's what the second breath is in a, in a large nutshell. It is a, a space to equip people uh, to really make that shift. Yeah, it was an amazing experience for me. And I'm really glad I got to take the class. And I love now that you don't have to be in person, right? People all over the country can be a part of this. I have the app. Um, so like we said, we'll link all that and, um, it will definitely enrich your relationship with Jesus and what mm. could be better than that. Right. So today we're going to talk about Joshua, the first Oof. couple of chapters. Woo. It's, it's a big one. It's, <laughs> it's a, a big doozy. one, right? It's a doozy. Um, How did I, it's, it's kind of like when you're getting, you're looking at the lectionary and you're seeing what's coming up and you're like, Oh, Oh man. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. I know. Like it was like last week, um, the lectionary, you know, and Mark was the one on on divorce, and I'm like, oh, I think I'll mm-hmm. preach on Hebrews. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> and no easier this week. So we have our big consecration Sunday at my church, where folks are turning their pledge cards and all that. And of course, what do we have but the rich young ruler? And so I get to say, <laughs> these pledge cards are cute. Let's actually go sell everything and yeah, bring it up here. Exactly. And get it, and, and the camel and the eye. Like, how do you make it all happen? Um, yeah, but, the, the folks, the folks that put together the lectionary knew what they were doing with the calendar. That's yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> but listeners, as you know, Alan and I are very committed to going through every part of the Bible, um, and it's going to take us fifty-seven years, and we're fine with that. Um, so last week. Uh, Dr. Cynthia Bridge Kitchridge was here and gave us sort of this amazing overview of Joshua. And that was so great. And so, Greg, we're excited that you're here with us to sort of go through this introduction, really, of Joshua and the successor role he has for Moses. Right. And then sort of the preparation and entrance that they're finally to the promised land. All these years of trying to get there and they're finally there. So. Greg, do you have kind of any initial thoughts when you read through these five chapters? What kind of spoke to you? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 two, the two big events are Jericho and the walls coming down and crossing the River Jordan. I mean, these are, I mean, huge historic, you know, in terms of significant stories that have defined uh, the, the Judeo-Christian uh, ethos and uh, understanding of our identity. I mean, these are two critical well-known. All the kids know these stories. And uh, of course, in the kids' versions, we leave a lot out. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, s- such as Joshua saying that God was commanding them to kill every man, woman, and child, uh, every living thing. Uh, so at the beginning, we realized there's some, some tension. And, and, and just to, just at a 30,000 foot level, and then I would love to get, uh, you know, down to the, the, the ground floor of this. You know, from when I originally I was ordained as a Presbyterian minister back in 2001 as a conservative PCA Presbyterian Church in America, conservative Presbyterian, and I had a lens on the Bible that was the Bible's inerrant, the inerrant Word of God, and so everything in here is 
is perfect and just right. So even when there's total dissonance with Jesus or total contradiction that we see, you would have to do gymnastics uh, to make it fit. Uh, and so at that point, I would look back and say, well, I don't understand why God would command every child to be massacred. That seems very un-Jesus-y and uh, very uh, contradictory to every other thing that we find, and especially in the expression through Christ. But it's the word of God, so it has to be true. Now, I don't hold that view anymore. I've had a, a significant personal evolution in terms of my own spirituality, kind of a, from one solar system of conservative evangelicalism to now sometimes feeling like I'm at the very front of the, a very progressive denomination. Um, but I, I approach it now through a, a very Christocentric lens that I, that in, that Jesus is my hermeneutic, you know, that Jesus is the lens through which I interpret the Bible. And, you know, we're uh, invited to, to worship Christ. We're not invited to worship the Bible. Uh, and so I think it's helpful then to approach the Bible with that Christocentric lens. And also, uh, as Cynthia talked about last week, a historical critical uh, lens and understanding what was happening at the time in history, because as we know, nothing is ever written without agenda. Uh, that, that especially we, these things were written uh, to for a purpose. Uh, and as Cynthia, I thought she made a very strong case last week that most likely a lot of, you know, folks believe that these were written, uh, that Joshua was written uh, during the time of exile after Syria had taken out northern Israel and Babylon had taken out southern Israel and they were in exile. And after generations in exile, they began to kind of, you know, commingle and cohabitate with other uh, you know, uh, populations and other people groups and other cultures. And these books were written in many ways to define their, what Brian McLaren calls them, uh, framing stories. And, uh, that every culture, America has framing story. Every, you know, Great Britain has framing stories. Rome has framing story. Every society has a dominant framing story that really establishes why we do what we do, what our value is, what our priorities are. And depending on your framing narrative, uh, some are good framing narratives, some are destructive framing narratives, but they really define the trajectory of your cultural movement. Um, and, and I genuinely believe this was crafted as a framing narrative to give the people an identity with an agenda to remain pure and come back to their homeland, really, to come back to the place where they've been exiled from. Um, and so w- with that in place, I think it makes a lot more sense. So the question is, again, as Cynthia said last week, is this really, how historically accurate is this? Did it all occur like this in in one fell swoop of of fleeing uh, Egypt and entering the promised land in a successful conquest and dominating? Did it even happen at all? Uh, Again, but that's the, the, the historicity in many ways is secondary to the purpose of the framing narrative. And, and for example, like, um, uh, America, we, we've got our framing narratives that like uh, some of them are kind of small and seemingly harmless, like uh, that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and said, I cannot tell a lie, or that George Washington threw a silver dollar across the Delaware River to show his power, you know, uh, or then they get more harmful framing narratives like uh, what the, what our society metabolized with Manifest Destiny, right? That all of a sudden our framing narrative in, when we were just on the East Coast was saying, we God is giving us our expansion West. And when, when the culture metabolized this framing narrative, it gave us permission to kill and steal 
the land from the native populations with God's blessing, quote unquote. And so, so, so we realize, and so to me, the, the, the beautiful, the beauty and the mess of, of Joshua is that it really is establishing this, this framing narrative, uh, for that moment in time, uh, to help give them identity and purpose and establish their trajectory for better, for worse. So I, that's kind of a 30,000 foot view about what I believe is happening in Joshua. And it helps. And so some of that, you see the ugliness uh, of, yeah. And, and so with this framing narrative, the priority is God's on our side. We are God's people. We have to remain pure. Do not enter, do not uh, marry other cultures and nations. And we need to return to the homeland that God gave us. This is our land from God. Um, and it's a very clear agenda. Um, and then, of course, okay. I would say it's, it's beyond morally ambiguous. Oh, my God. You just like blew my mind 17 different ways. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is I so appreciate you talking about like your lens, the lens that we look at this. And we've talked about this some, but I think honestly, that's when we can abuse the words of the Bible, right? We, we can, when we look at it in a way framework, and this is not to like denominations are wrong. I'm not trying to get into like a battle of that, but, um, I do think who we are as people, how we look at things, what lens we put on when we read this stuff that sometimes is super hard to digest, um, makes all the difference in the world. And so I really, really appreciate that. And I love, what did you say? We're invited to love Christ, not love the, not love the Bible. Is that what you said? Yeah, Um, Worship. Yeah. Worship. Worship. Thank you. Um, And I think that's an important thing. I mean, we should love the Bible. There's a lot of important things in here, but to worship it, um, I think is um, just, I don't know. I think people can abuse that and really worship the Bible when it's Christ that we should be worshiping. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, it makes me think, and I've been trying to rack my brain. I was at a thing on Tuesday. It was a Hall of Fame induction for college football thing. And this one guy got up, and in his acceptance speech, he quoted some scripture, and then he started to to expound on it. You know, it turned into a little bit of a sermon. And I can't remember what word he used, but it was a word that that he was obviously talking about the English translation, but the English translation is of a modern word with a modern usage. And he started talking, it was a technological thing. I can't remember. Like he starts explaining this word that would have had no concept 2000 years ago. Cause they wouldn't have even understood like, oh, I can't remember what it was, but it makes me think, right? Like we come at the scriptures. So you're talking, Greg, scriptures were written with an agenda, right? They were written to certain people groups. They were written at certain time periods. Even the New Testament, the Gospels, and the letters were written to during time periods to people groups. So there's agendas. Maybe good, maybe bad, whatever. And then we also can come to it with an agenda because we want it to say this. And so that's where I think, going back to what Cynthia said, the historical critical is we hopefully we can set aside our agendas a little bit to get a kind of what we think they're getting at. But then we also need to wrestle with their agenda of the, of the writers. And, and right. how do you unpack all those layers? It's really hard when I'm sitting at home and trying to have a quiet time and just read my Bible, things yeah. strike me and I don't have all the tools with me to, to dig into all that. But it's yeah. when we just let our initial gut reading saying, Oh, this says slaves obey your masters. That's right. what I'm going to latch on to, right? And there's people throughout history that latched on to that verse exactly. 
Oh, yeah. And we see where that really goes off the deep end. And so how do we, in places like this, uh, wrestle with that? I think this is like such a super important conversation because the Bible has been abused so much and it continues to be. And it's why, you know, people are hurt by the church, but, you know, like there's, it's just so complicated and all of that. And so, and we, we will talk more about Joshua. We're, we're going to get there y'all, but I just, I have had conversations with parishioners who have grown up in a different denomination or no denomination or whatever it may be. And they're like, but the Bible says, Mm -hmm. but the Bible says, and and it is so hard to make them kind of understand. So I just always say like, 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 let's pray about it. Let's talk about it. Let's have more conversations. Exactly what Greg was saying. You're not asked to worship this. You're asked to worship God. And those are two very distinctive things. So anyway, I'm excited. We talked about this a little bit. I think it could be very helpful to people, you know, as they move through their relationship with God. Yeah. And I think it gets back. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. It gets back into here, right? Like when, you know, Joshua is being kind of commissioned as, as the new Moses and all of this, it goes in here and the book of the law shall not depart of your mouth, right? There's this reutterance to Joshua, the importance of the law. Yeah. When I read that, I don't hear, here's the books. You have to know these books. This is the idea of the law. Yeah. I mean, it's encapsulated in written form in a book. But God's not saying, follow this. Right. He's saying, follow the heart. Follow the idea. Follow my word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think anytime someone says, the Bible clearly says, uh, it's, it's no, it doesn't. Uh, because as you, there's, there's, there's so, there's so many layers there. As you said, there's the agenda of the writer, the historical context. There's our lens through which, and it's impossible to not be subjective. It, we are going to be subjective. The best we can do is be as aware as we can of the lens through which we approach the Bible, but we're going to be subjective. We're going to, you know, we are raised in the West with Aristotelian leanings. You know, we were uh, raised in a context of independence and, and all of that is going to form a lens that we're, that we're unaware of that will inform our interpretation. Uh, and, and, and usually, and, and so, so to me, if when someone says the Bible clearly says it's, it's, that's called backhanded subjectivism where you actually think you're objective, but you're completely blind to your subjectivity. So the first thing we can do that's healthy is admit we're totally subjective. And then we can begin like an onion to peel back the layers to say, well, what's the historical context? What's the, the, the literary context? You know, what is, and we begin to dig theologically, historically into it. Uh, and then we begin to get to the heart of it. So, and again, the beautiful thing is, even with all that complexity, uh, that that's where God speaks to us. Uh, mm-hmm. God can really reveal uh, divine truth through this. And, and so I approach the Bible, especially the Hebrew scriptures, through the lens that I, it is, it is a, a beautiful, messy, generational story of people slowly growing in awareness of divine reality over generations. And like any personal or, or, or communal evolution and growth, it's usually three steps forward and two steps back, right? So there's, there's real movement forward in terms of understanding of the divine. And then there's two steps back. Uh, Richard Rohr actually really makes an interesting point. He said, the two books of the Hebrew scriptures that, um, 
Jesus never quotes are Joshua and Judges. Now, that, that's, that's an argument made in silence, but in, in his view that Joshua and Judges are the two steps back in terms of spiritual evolution, um, where we see a lot of beauty, and, and I think that's, that's painting it with a very broad brush. I think there's, there's beautiful stuff here, even in today's uh, very intense passages. There's, there's beautiful uh, diamonds. But I would agree with them that, that the, the idea of a, of a God-blessed uh, genocide is insane, um, and it was, it, it's, it's insane. It, it is not a reflection of, of divine love of God, but it was at the time what they needed, they thought they needed for their evolution. I, I agree with Rohr that that's, that's one of the big steps back in terms of, of growth and, and progress. That being said, I do think there's some real beauty here. And it comes in chapter one where we meet uh, Rahab. Um, and so, so here, are, you know, the, the people are coming to, to Jericho. The, the, it's a, a walled city. The, the story says that now the, the, the word of God being with the Israelites has gone across the country and everyone's terrified. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, these two spies go in, and Rahab, who we're told is a prostitute, there's some debate uh, about that uh, Hebrew term, whether she was a prostitute, but. It, it seems relative. Most there's a lot of agreement that she probably was a prostitute. Took them in, um, and so of course, and, and then she hid them and then snuck them out. And and she did this by bartering her own family's life. She said, "Okay, I know you all are coming. You're going to destroy everybody, but I'll protect you if you uh, save me and my family." So so if you're if you're from Jericho and you're hearing about Rahab. She's Benedict Arnold. She's Judas. I mean, she's the villain. She's the greatest villain in the story. But of course, from the, the, the wild thing is, this is the person that in Matthew 1 is in the lineage of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, this, it's this mind blowing reality that, that all of a sudden that in Matthew 1, this prostitute that was a outsider Gentile now becomes in the lineage of Christ. So there, to me, there's something completely messy and ugly and beautiful about her whole story, uh, which to me is indicative of the spiritual journey. Messy, beautiful, ugly, right? All at the same time. It's how we grow. But when you see that, that Rahab, this, this prostitute now, is that, that Christ, that, that Jesus is born from, Jesus of Nazareth is born from her lineage, according to Matthew 1, it speaks to God's redeeming power. It speaks to the, the capacity for all of us no matter what our stories are, they're totally redeemable, that God works in and through all of us. Um, of course, again, the story primarily works from the perspective of the Israelites, not so much from the people of Jericho. Uh, you know, but I do think it's a, it's a fascinating, in terms of the people writing these books in exile and folding that wrinkle into the conquest narrative it's fascinating. It, it's, it's, it really is. And then for Matthew to pick up on that thread and then weave it into the lineage of Christ, I think it's a, uh, I think it's just overflowing with possibility and richness and, and some aspect of, of, of the redemptive. Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, I think that's how God works, right? Is the beautiful, the messy and the prostitutes and the people that we think, oh, Wish they should be ashamed of themselves. She is a major character, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Like that gives me hope, right? I mean, that we're all going to be okay. I think another theme that's important, um, that's more of on the, on the happy side, I guess, is 
the be strong and courageous is, is said to Joshua. I think it's said three times in this first um, chapter. Um, right. I, I think God or Yahweh is really like pushing. I know I'm giving you something hard. I know this is going to be tough. But remember, be strong and courageous. I am back into my C.S. Lewis Bible. Oh, yeah. And that's all C.S. Lewis talks about in jo- with Joshua. Like, um, I guess he's finding the good, the good stuff and not the hard stuff. <laughs> that be yeah. strong and courageous. Like, and I mean, I guess Joshua was like, I don't know if I can do this, but God keeps reminding it's going to be okay. I mean, then to follow Moses. Man, that's a tough one too. Like, who wants to follow Moses? I mean, yeah, you know? right. Yeah, and it is interesting too. That's a lot of the emphasis uh, of Joshua um, is the uh, obedience to the law. And I and I do think, uh, Alan, to your point earlier, of of course the, the the law was far more than just you know rules to us. You know, we have like so there was uh, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus representing the law and the prophets, you know, full affirmation of Christ's uh, uh, status uh, and identity. Um, so the law in its in its richest form really represents, like you said, Alan, the heart uh, of, of, of God, a reflection of what it means to live fully uh, this life. And, and not to, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer on uh, these passages, but at the same time, the message is clear in Joshua that uh, you're, you're an exile, people. Bad things happen to you because you disobey the law. Um, and so, uh, so, so there is, in this one, there's some pretty nasty strings attached, and I think some pretty damaging theology in terms of if you obey God, good things will happen and you'll be blessed. If you disobey God and break the rules, you're going to be cursed, and which I think is, you know, uh, rubbish. Um, but I think on, on an egoic, superficial level, uh, that's an easy way. Oh, the Bible clearly says, follow the God's law and you'll be blessed. Um, and there's some truth to that in, sense, in the sense of, uh, yeah, if you if you do these bad things, if you commit murder, your life's not going to be good. Or if you have you know committed adultery, it's not going to be good. Like the Ten Commandments, you know, and and do, it's if these are things that are um that, that are just kind of basic human understanding of what will bring life. But in terms of that divine bargain of I'm doing good, God, so you you owe me. Uh, it's kind of that. It, it, it to me, that's where there's profound dissonance. But I do think you're right. We can we can gently kind of like, like uh, theological archeologists brush away some of the egoic uh, debris and dust and expose the heart underneath of obey, obey the law uh, in terms of what does it mean to genuinely follow God from the heart? As for me and my house, we'll obey the Lord, right? I've seen that uh, in so many houses. It comes from this. Of course, the original context was bloody and brutal, but we turned it into uh, little hand-stitched uh, paintings or hand-stitched uh, framed art. But that being said, there's you can do that. You can do both of those. You can understand the bloody historical context and say, and there's something rich and beautiful for us that we can still lift uh, from from the from the story. Well, you know, I love a hand stitched. I mean, I'm. A- <laughs> <laughs> so it like- makes me think your next project, Mary Balfour. It should be like live, laugh, love, and kill all the Philistines. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm so glad we talked about this because I do think I can sometimes have like the Pollyanna view of it. I'm like, oh, it's be strong and courageous, Joshua. You know, blah blah blah. But I, I, I do agree that it is important to really wrestle with this and dig into this and understand 
that um, it wasn't all roses and sunshine for these folks. It actually was pretty bad. Pretty, and that, pretty bad. To go back to your framing narrative idea, Greg, I think about the stories we teach kids, right? Both about scripture and about America, right? Like we can talk about Noah and Noah's faithfulness and the work that he did. And we don't have to get into the fact that like God flooded out everybody else. We can forget. Right. And so we can, like, because we know what kids need to know, like age appropriateness. We can also talk about the fact that like the founding fathers did things. And when little kids are like, we don't actually need to get into like the bad things they did. That stuff's going to come up as we age and mature. And so even the framing narrative shifts as we, as we grow up and our understanding is deeper and we can better understand context. But sometimes it feels like when it comes to scripture, we don't ever mature in our understanding of the context. We just want to talk about the good stuff. We don't want to talk about, Yep. wait, God killed everybody, but Noah and his family. That's hard. Did did he? Yeah. Did, (laughs) did did she? Yeah. uh, Yeah. I I think, I think, and that's the critical, and, and that's where, again, and I really do believe this, our framing narratives, the lens through which we, view life, they're, they're not primarily logic and reason based. They're primarily emotion based and kind of primal impulse based. So the reason that people believe what they do is not so much because it makes sense logically. It's because there's an emotional need attached to it. And I don't know of something with a greater charge of emotional need than the Bible, because, you know, it's, it's that, that we need it, especially if you get, when I was an evangelical, if you said this was not the word of God, I, in my mind, I was basing the order and stability of my entire life on the inerrancy of scripture. So for, at that point in my journey to threaten the inerrancy of scripture was to threaten my very existential being. Um, so I would defend it. I would go, I'd get you know, I'd yell at you. I mean, I would get angry and, and almost tearful because I felt so threatened. And that's, and we have to realize there's such an emotional charge around the Bible that, that really keeps us stuck in our subjectivity. And, and again, it's impossible not to be subjective, but we can grow an awareness of our biases and then attempt to uh, approach it with a, a broader, uh, welcoming of the complexity. It's not figuring out the right answer. It's being comfortable with the mystery and complexity and holding the tension all together. So now I love the Bible and it is, I, I don't view it as inerrant anymore, but I do believe it's inspired. And I do believe it, it's, it is a glorious story of people growing in awareness of divine reality. And all of a sudden when it comes to Jesus, the house lights come on and we see this, you know, glorious reflection of the reality that where the, where's the 10 commandments was a, a facet. Now here we have the diamond in Christ. Right. And so, uh, so we see this movement. So I love it, but it, it's then holding it all in tension and certainly not worshiping it. Um, and then, and then that gets to, and I know I, I, I can like, we're all three, so we can just blather on forever, I'm sure. But it gets to, uh, to then in Joshua, you know, two and three, we get to the crossing of the, the River Jordan, uh, which this is both, this is where we have, again, this is, once we understand that people were most likely writing this when they're in exile, that this is this glorious bookend, right? That, that, that they escaped slavery and went through the Red Sea on dry land because God was with them. And now here is the closing of a chapter and the opening of a new one, right? It is the closing of the Exodus story and the beginning of the conquest of the promised land. And it is now with the crossing of the river Jordan. So they, they take the ark, 
the priests carry the ark, and all of a sudden, just like the Red Sea, the waters recede, and that the ark of the covenant representing the very presence of God with the people, and then all of the Israelites pass through on dry land. And here's, again, a glorious bookend to Exodus story saying God's with us just as much now as when we were, you know, and, and we're just as much God's people now. And it's also this affirmation of the conquest. For yeah. better or for worse, that was the framing narrative they need. And, and it was this affirmation that this is your inheritance, the promised land. You're God's people. Uh, and, and I mean, I would just think if you're reading that and you've been alone in isolation in a foreign land and you realize, oh, my gosh, this is my identity. We are God's people. How it would be thrilling. I mean, it would be utterly uh, inspiring to get you to want to move back uh, to your homeland. Um, so anyway, I just, but I, but I do think it's a, it's a really beautiful, poignant, disturbing, uh, bookend, uh, when you have the, the crossing of the River Jordan, um, on dry land, uh, especially held in balance with the Red Sea. Okay. So Greg, you, you're definitely going to have to come back because we, I feel like we just like scratched the surface a little bit and we're almost already out of town. Um, Alan. My reflection question this week, I'm really, really going to go do some more research on Rahab. I feel like what a brilliant woman, even in the midst of such heartache and pain and, and what a story there is to tell there. And we don't have enough great women stories that we lift up, even when they're not the most pleasant thing in the world. Um, because, but who is not at fault? Who does not? make mistakes, you know, and, um, so I want to learn more about her. Um, and I, I'm just grateful to be able to get in the ugly, the messy, the beautiful, all that stuff. Um, Greg, any parting words for us? I just think it, it, the, the freedom, uh, the, the freedom to wade in, uh, and, and splash around and explore. And, and it's not about looking at these stories to get it right, but realizing uh, that it's, that it's in the messiness. There's a, j- just this, uh, what I love about what, what I love about Jesus of Nazareth. And again, the, the, the founding myths of our Christian story. And by myth, I don't mean false. I, I I'm, I'm not myth is the truest truth, but the, the founding mythology within our Christian tradition uh, is that, while so many religions are about trying to escape the messy, escape the suffering, and transcend it, while, while we're trying to get up to heaven, Jesus passes us on the way down into the messy, in the incarnation, to enter into the ugly, into the mess, to reveal divine beauty all around us, even in the mess and ugliness. And so to me, I think that when we approach Scripture with that lens, that it's not about getting it right, but we can wade in even into the messiness of our lives, into the messiness of the story, because that's where we're going to find God. And we don't have to tie it up in a bow. It doesn't have to be neat it can, because our lives are not neat, because that's where Jesus is. That's where Christ is, right with us in the mess. Beautiful. Alan? Yeah, I just want to echo that, and it brings me back to Rahab. Rahab, when the spies come to Rahab, Rahab retells the story to the spies. <laughs> she knows the story of God, and she says... The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. So Rahab mm-hmm. knew what you were talking about, Greg. Mm-hmm. God is mm-hmm. God is God in heaven, but mm-hmm. God is in the mess on earth below. Mm. Dude, goosebumps, man. Goose, you gave me goosebumps with that one, Alan. <laughs> well, listeners, 
As always, thank you for joining us. And as you know, we love you, but most importantly, God does, even in your messiness. 